Welcome to Where Do You Exist, a storytelling podcast in collaboration with HBO and their new television series, Here and Now. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Here and Now from Oscar and Emmy Award winner Alan Ball stars Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter and can be watched only on HBO. The new series is a provocative and darkly comic meditation on the disparate forces polarizing present-day American culture as experienced by the members of a progressive multi-ethnic family and a contemporary Muslim family headed by a psychiatrist who is treating one of their children. And what you're listening to right now is the second episode of Where Do You Exist, a six-part podcast miniseries recorded in front of live audiences in Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles, and New York City. Leaning into the themes of Here and Now, a diverse collection of local trendsetters share their most intimate true tales of family, identity, love, belonging, and finding one's way in the world. Today, you'll hear three stories from Portland. Enjoy. Our next storyteller is originally from La Ciudad de Mexico, but currently lives in La Ciudad de Seattle, Washington. <laughs> He's a social entrepreneur, director, and founder of Storytellers for Change. Please welcome the one and only Luis Ortega, everybody. Hijo, la gente se convierte en las historias que cuenta sobre su propia gente. Así que dime. ¿Qué historia vas a contar tú? Those are the words of my abuelita, Catona Saldaña, who, by the way, when she was born, her name was Catalina Saldaña. Later on in life, she knew that wasn't her name, so she said, no, I'm Catona. And that should just give you a sense of who my grandmother is. And one of my earliest childhood memories is of my grandmother pulling me over to the side and telling me, you become the story you tell about yourself. Okay, now, off you go. <laughs> I think something's wrong with grandma. <laughs> you know, my uh, upbringing took place in La Ciudad de Mexico, and uh, it was in a single-parent household, but it feels a bit disingenuous to say that because my abuelita was there too, so in fact, she was my other mom. And this is the story I choose to tell. I am a freshman at the University of Washington in 2005, and I just got an email from my favorite high school teacher, Miss Feeling. Oh, uh, this was pretty exciting too because college was not what I expected, <laughs> so far at least. I was used to being this overachieving 3.9 GPA model minority kid in high school. First quarter at the University of Washington, I have a 1.5 GPA. That's right. <laughs> so, Miss Feeling's email is welcome news to me. Hi, Luis. I'm so excited that you're at the University of Washington, got Huskies. I would love to invite you to come back to Roosevelt High School to speak to a group of students about college. Against my better judgment, I accepted the invitation. <laughs> and if I could just explain it to you, I, I would choose just two words, briefly. Uh, love. And that really comes from my mother, because growing up, she had this very persistent question that she would ask of me and my two younger sisters, what are you going to do for others? And for some weird reason, it felt like I just had to go talk to these kids. And, and, and it was love, not for the kids, love for my mom. 
that made me say, okay, I guess I'm gonna do this. But the second one, and I, and I think the most important one, was anger. Anger because although I was academically successful at Roosevelt, socio-emotionally, it sucked. I remember people teasing me because of my accent. Now I love it, by the way. <laughs> I remember people make me feel like a stranger all the time. And most painfully, I remember senior year when I didn't know how I could get to college. So I make an appointment with my high school counselor. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the right person to talk to, so let's get this over with. I want to know if I can go to college. And before I can continue explaining to my counselor what's going on, she just overwhelms me with all kinds of information, SAT and ACTs and FAFs and personal statements. Whoa, 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 whoa. That wasn't my question. It's not how can I get to college, it's can I go to college. And clearly she didn't understand what I meant. And you have to understand at this point, like my hands are sweating and my heart feels like it's about to burst out of my chest. Because I know I'm about to tell her something that my mom told me, you never disclose this to anyone. But I had to have an answer to my question. So I finally managed to ask, I don't have papers, can I go to college? And there was just this puzzle looked in her face that told me she still doesn't get it. I'm gonna have to say it. Okay, I'm gonna say it. I'm illegal. Okay, pause. I just used a word that, and I don't say this lightly, I hate it, and it hurts me. And the only time you will ever hear me use that word is when I tell this story for three reasons. The first one, it is the word that I used that day to describe myself. And that is important to understand within the context of this story. The second, because any time I've ever given the chance to tell my story, I have to deliver the message, no human being is illegal. But we make people feel illegal all the time. And we need to stop that. And the third is that no matter what, even though I used to describe myself that way and think that way about myself, we can reclaim our narratives. So I know very different now. I am a human being, and I deserve respect and dignity. Yeah. But this is not the story I knew when I was 17 years old. This is not the story I write on newspapers. This is not how I heard teachers and classmates talk about me and my family. So when I went inside that small office to talk to my counselor, I wasn't expecting much in return, really, I wasn't, because the narrative I had about myself as an immigrant is I'm hardworking but unworthy. So I came in prepared to hear one of two answers. Yes, Luis, you can go to college, that's what I was hoping for. No, Luis, you can't, and I was ready to accept that. So I was prepared for those two answers, I was not prepared for what happened next. Because after my counselor stayed quiet for five long minutes, she just simply stood up took a couple steps toward her door, she opened it, and before asking me to leave, she said to me, people like you don't go to college, now get out. So I walked out of that office, I walked out of school, and I walked, and I walked, and I walked. And I eventually made it home, so by the time I got there, my mom had just arrived from work, and she was too tired to notice I was hurt. 
And my two younger sisters were in our living room doing some homework and too busy to notice how frustrated I was. And my grandmother was sitting on a chair reading a book and she, she noticed. And she just walked right up to me and in the same loving and yet so serious tone, she just pulled me over to the side, she grabbed me by the arm and she said to me, now, I don't know what happened to you today, but you will tell your own story. Now off you go. So I applied to University of Washington, I get accepted, I leave Roosevelt High School, I'm like, bye, peace out, I'm never coming back here. And a couple months go by, and I'm on a bus, and I'm going back to this high school to give a presentation. I'm not very consistent, am I, with my promises? <laughs> and as soon as I get there, Miss Feeling is there, and she's welcoming, she's so excited to see me. And she's like, oh my God, you're here, Luisa, and it's so exciting that you're here. I'm like, okay, Miss Feeling, calm down. So I'm walking towards the classroom, and I'm thinking to myself, five to 10 minutes, five to 10 kids, answer some questions. Well, I get there and I see what, uh, to me at least at the time, seemed like no less than 100 students, and I'm told that I have an hour to speak, some communication breakdown between me and Miss Feeling, <laughs> and I feel like I'm about to cry. And suddenly, the presentation is over. And as soon as I'm done, everything's over, kids are just waiting to get out of there. <laughs> So they, they were awful, and I'm just like, get them out of here, but it's over, right? Okay, so I'm obviously never doing this again, and I'm beginning to calm down. Out of the corner of my eye, I notice uh, there's a kid that stayed behind. And as he's approaching me, I'm beginning to think, what am I gonna say to you? I don't get a chance to say anything. He just rushes towards me like he's gonna tackle me. He grabs me, he hugs me, and he begins to cry, and I'm just like, What's going on? My arms just go up and I have no idea what to do. I'm an introvert, I'm shy, my bubble just got burst. Like, what's going on? <laughs> then he just keeps crying. So eventually, like, I started feeling a little bit sad too. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just so weird, so awkward. But then I start thinking, well, I am weird and awkward. And I start thinking about all the times that I've been the stranger, the other. And Pretty soon, we're like both hugging each other and we're just telling each other, nothing's okay in this world. <laughs> but eventually he comes down, I come down, and he kind of takes a step back and eventually looks up at me. And I will never forget what he said to me. Like, just, just five words. Your story changed my life. What? Immediate disbelief, because that's what happens when that's the story you've been told and you've been conditioned and socialized onto. That's the immediate response. But then something else happened. Well, my thoughts told me, don't believe this weird kid. My heart told me, you're weird too. And he's telling you the truth. I felt human. I don't remember this kid's name. I don't really remember much more of what he told me that day. All I remember is how he made me feel. Yeah, storytelling is powerful. But story listening is just as transformational. We become the stories we tell about ourselves, my grandmother once told me. So I guess that also means that we become the stories we listen. We're all worthy. We can find a home in our own stories and let us just have the courage to listen to each other. Hey everyone, my name is Luis Ortega. I'm undocumented, unafraid, and a storyteller for change. Thank you.
you should be the next president of the United States, my friend. That was a beautiful story. People aren't illegal, actions are illegal, and as far as I can tell, every action you've taken has been beautiful and brave and courageous. Thank you for telling your story tonight. A lot of comics are like, he's a close personal friend of mine, but he really is. Uh, we started comedy together back in the day. I love this man so much. He is so funny. Uh, you've seen him on Conan. He has his own half-hour special on Comedy Central, and you've also seen him on Viceland. Everyone, please welcome Solomon Giorgio, everybody. I'm going to start this story in 1998. Um, I was 16 years old. Uh, I was working at Subway. Let's say I, I figured I was gay when I was nine years old. Uh, it was pretty much, I was like, I was looking through the Sears catalog and it just hovered in the men's underwear section <laughs> for longer than anyone else needed to. Um, but the issue with that is that I, I kept that close to my chest uh, because for me, um, I'm Ethiopian, that's why I look perfect. Um, <laughs> never found a flaw, not about to. Um, But I came to America when I was very young, and the thing is that as a foreigner especially, you don't feel like there's anywhere you, you generally are a part of, um, except for your family, and that was what my family was to me. Um, but the issue is that my parents were very traditional, very religious, uh, and homosexuality was definitely a terrible thing to them. Uh, it was unacceptable, and for me, their acceptance meant so much. Uh, because I was the golden child. I was the smartest, the fastest, the prettiest. Uh, <laughs> I, did every, like, I did everything right in school. I went to school every day, perfect attendance. I was, just, I was an overachiever because I didn't fit in at school. I didn't fit in anywhere else. But if I got these glorious uh, accolades uh, from them when I did well in school, it mattered so much to me. So I just worked my butt off in that regards. Um, but then uh, it was 1998, and... I, it was gonna be my 17th birthday, and my birthday is Christmas Day. Um, legally, it's the 15th, because uh, our translator didn't uh, do it right. Uh, <laughs> it was very annoying. But my family celebrates my birthday on Christmas Day, uh, and it meant a lot to me, uh, because they took a time to acknowledge my existence on a day that no one else does. Uh, and however, my parents forgot my 17th birthday. But like it was, I, I remember that Christmas morning, I, was, I ran downstairs, just excited to celebrate my birthday with my family. And my mother, I see my mother first and she says, Merry Christmas. And then, you know, you wait for the other thing you've heard right after that for the last 16 years of your life. And she didn't say it. And then I went to my dad and he said, Merry Christmas. And there I was again waiting uh, for the remainder, which was happy birthday, uh, but he didn't do it either. And at first, I was like, well, maybe they're throwing me a surprise. No, my parents are very traditional Africans. They have never thought of doing a surprise in their entire lives. <laughs> Surprises are dangerous. No one does them. <laughs> so I knew they forgot. For so that just crushed me so much because that is, their acknowledgement of me meant so much to me. And when they didn't give it to me in the day that was most important to me, I was like, well, screw this. I don't like, because that's the thing, I didn't want to live the life that I was going to give them. I was going to go marry an Ethiopian woman, go to school, become a doctor, live this sort of life plan they put together. And the second that I got 
a lack of acknowledgement in that regard. I was like, oh wait, I never wanted this to begin with. And then I got a brief moment of mental freedom from having to follow these rules and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna run away. I'm gonna go become famous, I can do that. I don't know how, but I'll do it. And I'm gonna do it in Los Angeles, California. Now we were in Seattle at the time, uh, in a suburb called Lake Forest Park. And I was a very smart kid, so I was like, I'm not gonna up and leave and just walk off randomly. I'm like, no, I'm gonna be a fancy runaway. Uh, so I plotted for six months. I, was, I saved all my money from my work at Subway, uh, which wasn't very much. I needed more. So I then uh, embezzle, I guess, money from my mother's account. <laughs> I know, I, I feel bad about it now. Uh, <laughs> so I, I finally got the fancy runaway situation going. And then I went to the Greyhound station and they, they just let a 17 year old on the bus and I, I did that. Uh, and it's a 30 hour trip on the Greyhound. And now up until this point, I was always very comfortable. I, was, I never took any risks. I never strayed from the plan. So I was like, this is the first time I was introduced to extreme anxiety. And I was just terrified the whole time. And I didn't know what I was gonna do. Uh, and I got to Los Angeles and then I was like, all right, well, now we gotta figure this out. This whole city, you're 17, what are you gonna do? Uh, how do you become famous? Uh, <laughs> and so I went up to this board that just showed a bunch of, uh, of hostels you can stay at. And the, the one that I chose, it said Hollywood on it. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. You should just go to the Hollywood one. <laughs> That's where you make movies. Also, Hollywood is not where they make movies at all. Do not go to Hollywood if you can save your life. Uh, it is. <laughs> the worst part of Los Angeles. <laughs> and I went directly to this hostel that was around the corner from the Man's Chinese Theater. Uh, it was, everyone was in their 30s and their dreams were on the verge of dying. And they, and I brought such vibrant youth to them. They were very thrilled. <laughs> they were like, oh, this kid's got some dreams left in him. Come on in here. Uh, and I ran out of that money very quickly. I didn't know what to do. So what ended up happening is that I went to my first homeless shelter. And that was when the reality generally kicked in of who I was and where I was. Go I was a runaway. Uh, I was a closeted teen and I was very anxious. And I was escaping for a moment there by living in a hostel, but I was definitely, definitely not feeling good. Um, and then the first hostel I went to gave me a month before they told me that they were gonna call my parents. And I was like, no, that's not where I belong. I, don't want to go back there. And I ended up going to another shelter. Uh, this shelter said I can stay there as long as I want. And it was a shelter for ex-prostitutes and strippers under the age of 18 called Children of the Night. It is a phenomenal shelter that it helps out young women that are in dangerous situations. I was not any of those things, but they, <laughs> they saw a closeted little gay boy and they're like, you can come in here, you're safe. Uh, <laughs> and I began to uh, start going to school and I started focusing on my studies and starting getting work. Um, but unfortunately, the responsibility of what I want to do in my life and not telling people who I am or letting myself be accepting for that, my anxiety just became overwhelming. And the attacks started happening within a month or so of, in the second shelter. Um, the first anxiety attack, I snapped and I ran to a bathroom, I locked myself in and I stayed there for three hours and I was freaking out the entire time. The shelters are not very, they're not set up for these kind of situations so they immediately called the mental institution um, to evaluate me. And I got to my first mental hospital. Um, wards of the state aren't treated like 
very much like human beings. Um, a lot of the kids there had anger issues that could have been solved. There was also kids that were just disabled. They were just put there for the moment until they can find the place. So it was just like this mixed bag of wonderful kids that could have had great places to be, but the mental institution was the best, was the only place that they could put them. And I only got there, I only stayed there for three days. And they gave me some medication. And here's the thing, the issue with a lot of the medication that we're given in regards to, th to this is uh, it's usually way too strong when you first get it, uh, especially anxiety medication, which can completely numb you. So I got an adult dose of anxiety pills at the age of 17, which completely numbed me, and I immediately wanted to stop doing it. So when I got back to the shelter, I just, within three days, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is not for me. When you stop taking medication, uh, well, the reason you start taking it to begin with is now threefold. I may have decided that I should cut my own hair in the middle of the night. Uh, <laughs> And the only object that I had was just a uh, kid pair of scissors. I also decided to also do that with my eyebrows. And I woke up the next day and they're like, well, you're gonna have to go back to the hospital. And I didn't wanna go. I wanted to call my parents this time because I didn't feel I was belonging anywhere. And it's like the only place that I have anything familiar with, I should call my parents. And they wouldn't let me call my parents. Uh, so I decided then, it's like, well, if I'm gonna go back, I'm just gonna throw a phone at this man real quick. Uh, <laughs> So I did, and guys, I have a really good arm. It's really surprising. Um, but also, he's dealt with this before, so he ducked very well. He, he <laughs> so there's just a giant hole in that wall there forever. Um, but I got back to the institution, and, that's, and I got to be in a longer stay, which was very difficult. But I, I finally decided to call my parents, and I finally heard the relief in their voice. Uh, I finally felt that I'm, they do want me, and... My dad came after two weeks, uh, and he saw me. And the first thing he said was, the fuck did you do to your hair? <laughs> and then he hugged me, and we cried. And I finally understood. It's like, I am where I belong. Where I belong is where I am. And I got back home, and by my next birthday, I came out to my parents. Didn't get much fanfare on their side, but I didn't care anymore, because I was like, I can survive five months on my own if I want to. Um, I hope, uh, I hope that everybody finds that place for themselves in the future and to not be afraid of who you are and who you are is pretty goddamn spectacular. Our next speaker is a professor of Renaissance poetry at Reed College who's written op-eds for the Washington Post and the Oregonian. Currently lives in Portland. Everyone please give a warm welcome to Lucia Martinez Valdivia, everybody. Hello, hi, good evening. Um, okay, so interracial romance. It goes back a few generations in my family to my grandma Irene, who is Norwegian via North Dakota. She has blonde hair and blue eyes, and she married an indigenous Peruvian man in 1954 in Missouri. Most people today would probably describe this as an interracial marriage, but I didn't realize that until recently because as a child, I never thought of my family in terms of their race. My sense of family was more that we spoke a lot of languages, that there was always music on in the house, that unlike all my friends, I only got to eat fast food once a month on very special occasions. Um, we were different because of those things, not because of our skin colors, which were sort of unremarkable middle of the road to me. So my grandmother, 
She was a bit of an outlier when it came to caring about race in the Midwest in the 50s, not only when it came to dating, but when it came to her work. Because my grandma was a nurse, and she wasn't just a nurse, she was a psychiatric nurse. Um, and she always refused to segregate her black and white patients. Um, and when I first heard this as a kid, I was so proud. I was the granddaughter of an activist. Then it occurred to me to ask her what had made her go against all those social norms and the laws and the hospital policies. And she said, well, they weren't going to notice. They were all crazy. She's hardly what I would describe to most people as a social revolutionary. right? I think this is one of the main reasons that I never realized how shocking her marriage to my grandfather would have been when they actually did that. And the other reason is that growing up, I could only really clock one kind of interracial relationship. Um, only one thing counted as interracial to me, and that was black and not black, privileged and not privileged. So I moved to Portland almost four years ago now. And when people ask me where I'm from, and by this I mean they actually want to know geographically where I'm from, not like, where are you from? Your skin is amazing, right? Not that kind of like ethnic, where are you from, but really. Um, I give them the sort of list from birth to present, right? Columbia, Missouri, Tallahassee, Florida, London, New York, Philadelphia, New York again, and then finally Portland. I've dated in every single one of those cities, and everyone I've dated has been what I like to think of as 21st century white. And that means that they wouldn't necessarily have counted as white previously, but now they definitely do. So Jewish girls, Italian girls, Irish girls, you know, ethnic white. Um, before moving to Portland, I hadn't really noticed this pattern, because in all of those places I've lived, I haven't thought of myself as other in terms of my skin color. Did I think of myself as being the only child cursed with being a member of a Spanish-speaking family in 1989 in Columbia, Missouri? Yes, yes. But that was when I was seven. You know, that was an audible difference. It wasn't visible. Um, and so my family was this mix of indigenous Peruvian and Spanish conquistador on my dad's side, which is pretty normal in Peru, right? That's been going on for generations. Um, but my mom's side has that slightly more uncommon combination of indigenous Peruvian and North Dakotan Norwegian. As far as my own history, in those places that I have lived, in New York and London and Philly and Tallahassee, I was on the middle of the skin tone spectrum. I was more white in the winter, more brown in the summer, but I was unremarkably sort of, you know, mixed race, light-skinned, Roman-nosed, wavy-haired. And even in Missouri, I wasn't particularly dark, because when I was a kid, I ran around with this sort of tribe of the other children of international graduate students. Um, and so I was right in the middle between this sort of Scandinavian fluorescent pallor of Daniel and Adele Hansen and this glowing Sudanese darkness of Nabila Khalil. I was utterly unremarkable. And in our little nerd gang, because we were all a different color, the color didn't really matter. And because we all ate different foods, what we ate didn't matter. And because we all spoke different languages, what we spoke didn't matter. Um, we didn't really see those things as different. They were all just who we were. The things that mattered were, okay, did you prefer He-Man or She-Ra or My Little Pony or, you know, Care Bears? Whose team were you really on? That was your identity. Those were the categories of difference that mattered to us. But Portland. In Portland, I am brown. I am capital B brown. I am exotic. And actually, I'm not even just brown. I'm non-white in a way I've never felt non-white before. I've started seeing myself and my relationship with my girlfriend as being interracial. 
And what's funny to me is that it took moving to Portland to understand what my mom was talking about when she'd tell me stories about her childhood in New Haven, Connecticut in 1960, because my mom has two main memories of her childhood there that she would always tell me. Um, one was of her first snowfall, and the other was about a conversation her mother had with a stranger on a train. The snowfall story is exactly what you'd expect it to be. Like, oh, it was so magical and wonderful, and it was like a Bing Crosby movie, and we made snowmen. And as a child, I was completely enchanted by that picture. Um, the other conversation, the, the story about that train conversation, though, always left me a little bit underwhelmed. And this is sort of how she told it, was that a woman had approached my grandmother wanting to know whose children were with her whose brunette little girls were with her, a blonde-haired, pale-skinned woman. And I don't know how many times over the years I've heard this story, but I never really believed it, because to my eyes, my mom looks whiter than I do. And then I moved to Portland. Moving to Portland has given me an inkling of what my mom must have felt in New Haven in 1960, not because people here aren't friendly, but because they notice and talk about race all the time. It's constant. Everyone is an ally, and that means talking about race non-fucking-stop, right? Observing it, apologizing for it, being concerned about it. And it's painfully well-intentioned. And it is fucking exhausting, you guys. And I can't believe it took me this many decades to start thinking myself as having a race that isn't white, as being raced. And I'm a little grateful for it, but I also kind of really resent it, because race is an identity category that other people put onto me. Personally, my own identities, I'm an intellectual, I'm a lesbian, I'm opinionated, I have an unhealthy relationship to shoes and carbohydrates. Those are my identities, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but here, here in Portland, where I'm surrounded by pale lesbians and Subarus and hiking shoes, and I love you, don't get me wrong, I love you, I love you. But here, my hoops and my heels don't just read as femme lesbian, they read as exotic and brown and other. For the first time in my life, I've found myself wondering whether anybody would hesitate to introduce me to her parents. So, everything I've experienced in Portland has changed a lot about how I see myself about my race and my relationships, but it's also affirmed one thing that I've always believed and known, and that's that each family has its own culture and is utterly unlike any other. We might not all be bilingual or interracial, but we all have our own combinations of habits and jokes and food and slang and traditions that give every family its own thumbprint, as unique to itself as my gay Inca Viking Shakespeare and Lupe Fiasco loving ass is to me. Yes, my future wife and I will have an interracial family, but I hope that eventually, even in Portland, that will be one of the least unique things about us. Thank you. Where Do You Exist is produced by Little Everywhere in collaboration with HBO's Here and Now. Produced by Alan Ball, Peter McDesey, and David Noller. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Come back next week for more. <laughs>